What's happening, everybody? Thanks for tuning in once again to episode 13 of the Carbide Podcast with Tim Erickson. I'm sure for some of my younger listeners, the world of print media may feel like an ancient relic, but there was a time where this was the end-all, be-all for information on a given topic. If you were an avid snowmobiler, there was no feeling quite like driving up the driveway after a long, stressful day to see the latest issue sitting on your doorstep. It was the connection to an industry that for some was halfway around the world. Tim played a major role in Snowgoer and Snow Week magazine from the late 90s through to the late 2000s, and he's got one hell of a story of how he got there. I hope you enjoy our discussion. And welcome back, everybody, to the Carbide Podcast. Appreciate you guys tuning in once again. On the line tonight, longtime power sports industry professional, spent time in external relations with Polaris, former editor-in-chief for Snowgoer Magazine and the iconic Snow Week Magazine. He also has the misfortune of being a good friend of mine. This is Tim Erickson. How are we doing, Tim? Thanks, Spencer, for the intro. Uh, I'm doing great and uh, appreciate you uh, bothering to talk to me. This is kind of interesting. It's certainly a first for me to be a part of a podcast. Well, again, I appreciate it, Tim. You have quite the quite the diverse background in power sports, so I'm really looking forward to diving into it a bit. What that uh, means to me is that I've just uh, gotten old and uh, been around a while. So let me let me know where you want to go. There's there there can be a lot to cover. <laughs> Oh, I love it. I love it. Well, let's dive into it, Tim. Uh, I do. You know, I am curious because. All us power sports enthusiasts, you know, we live it our whole lives, but it all has to kind of start somewhere. So kind of growing up in the Erickson household, what was the first kind of toy you had? Who was riding? Where did this passion for power sports start for you? Well, um, that's a great, great starting point. Um, you know, I attribute it to being uh, genetic, but it's, I think, a recessive gene that skips a generation because it it's it's more from my grandfather on my dad's side than it was in okay. my immediate family um he was my my grandfather was a uh, diesel mechanic um built his own boat to be the fastest on the lake um built a second boat when somebody had one faster had a motorcycle that he had tuned up to race um and uh lived lived that kind of life unfortunately i never met him um he he died of a heart attack when my dad was um, still in the house. So um, I don't think that influenced my dad in any way. We still went to races. And um, I think I was always kind of predisposed to anything that moved. My parents talked to me about being a baby. And even in the crib, I was fascinated with movement and things with wheels. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when it came to snowmobiles specifically, we did have one, um, actually a couple in the house when I was uh pretty young kid, but to our family, they were tools. Um, okay. We've got a remote cabin up in the Canadian woods and that was how we could get there in the wintertime was, was on a snowmobile. And like a lot of people in the pioneering days of the sport, you know, that's, that's what they did. They bought them primarily just for over snow travel. So did it come a point in time then do you, Tim? I mean, we you kind of touched on, there's this kind of weird area in the snowmobile history where, people don't truly see it for recreation yet. It's not at that level yet, but for you, was it just kind of instantly fun or did it take some time before you realized how much fun you could have on a snowmobile? Oh, it didn't take me long at all. Um, 
when I lived up in the Minnesota Iron Range, um, we had a uh, an uncle, Uncle Oscar. It was one of my dad's uncles, and um, he had a '69 Polaris Mustang. And I remember doing laps around his yard on his lap when I was just a kid. Um, I mean, obviously a pretty young kid. And I remember the first time he let me steer it. Um, I believe we tipped over that day. Um, so, you know, I was probably a little bit more aggressive than that narrow stance could handle. But, uh, you know, one thing led to another. Um, I couldn't wait to to ride by myself and I didn't wait. Um, if my family didn't do it with me, I did it with myself. I ended up riding a snowmobile quite a bit to hockey practice in my early days. And then uh, I had a good friend of mine who had a kitty cat. Um, that was probably the first time I had really driven a snowmobile a lot. I was over at his house every chance I could get. And then um, a little bit later, I was probably about, you know, 10 to 12 years old when I started trail riding with uh, a friend of mine who I'll refer to as Jeff. He had a moto ski Capri, one mm -hmm. of the little orange jobs, and his dad had a scorpion whip. And uh, they took me under their wing and brought me along um, uh, several times. And um, I was riding our family's uh, 72 Scorpion Stinger at the time. Mm -hmm. So um, that was that was where it kind of opened a new door for me. This was all of a sudden not riding to hockey practice. This was, wow, I'm riding through the woods on a trail and and there's places to go and things to see. So that's that's what kind of lit my wick. So as you kind of got older through your, your teenage years and you're riding through the trails and kind of enjoying it a little bit more, did you kind of view it as this kind of power sports thing or this snowmobile thing as a whole? I want to... I want to kind of pursue it in some way, or was it still just kind of a hobby and not necessarily a, a career path for you at that point in time? Um, it wasn't actually ever a career path. I, I kind of landed there by accident, but um, okay. I guess going back to the, going back to the history, it was, it was always just more of a hobby or a recreation for me, something I really enjoyed. Um, never thought, never had much of a thought of, of taking it, you know, racing or anything, but quite honestly, at that time, I probably didn't know that, snowmobile racing really existed i guess you can say i was i must have been pretty sheltered but <laughs> it was uh um it was several years later that uh we happened to be in duluth and my dad brought me to the jeep 500 and that mm -hmm. was probably my first snowmobile race experience um where we were down um in a part of west duluth at one of the checkpoints as as racers were coming in when they would race all the way you know through duluth on their way to into canada and then um, basically that uh, that kind of remained. Um, I had other sleds that I kind of bought myself. Um, somewhere in there when I was in high school, I had a 79 El Tigre that was a little bit in its um, well-worn years um, mm -hmm. because I was I was in high school, you know, in the in you know 89 to 91. And uh, you know, this this sled was you know, 15 years old or so. And I basically rebuilt the whole thing from start to finish at one point. And that was the first engine I had overhauled. Um, and that was a, that was the 79, 6,000 with a 440 liquid. And I'd, I'd still love to have another one and keep my eye open a little bit. As soon as I have space for one, I'll, I'd, I'd love to put one in the barn, so to speak. Yeah. When, when you have space for it, Tim, I, I, I feel that battle every day. I got four or five sleds in my garage right now. So I'm, I'm on hold for a little while until maybe the wife kind of green lights it. So I, I feel the pain. 
Yeah, I've got I've got three right now and space for two in the trailer. So I, I'm I'm looking toward heydays to unloading one of them. Oh man! So kind of moving forward into your career, kind of let's say your late high school years when you're kind of looking towards college and looking towards kind of what the next step's going to be. Ultimately, journalism becomes a big part of your career. But I was curious if that too was kind of accidental or if you kind of always grew up enjoying writing and research and things like that um well for the writing um i think i think i always had a skill for it uh, but i ignored it a long time other mm -hmm. people noticed it before i did um my dad was pressuring me when i was heading off to college that hey you should be a you know you should go and be a writer um looking back at high school i was always in the more you know um quote unquote advanced English classes. There were some accelerated programs and and you know that you more or less had to be invited into and and um and I was a part of those that curriculum. So um but none of that really had a writing emphasis. Um mm -hmm. but I did end up after going to college pre-med, uh lo and behold, you know, I ended up with an English degree um with a heavy emphasis on on you know, writing, but more in the composition, more in feature, um, you know, less journalism. Um, mm -hmm. I did have a couple of journalism courses, so I was exposed to it certainly, but um, that at that point, it was almost just, what can I take to get me out of here with a degree the quickest? <laughs> and, uh, you know, it it just so happened that I had taken quite a few English classes and, and the couple that I had had at a different college before transferring into the uh, University of Minnesota system, um, those cre those credits transferred very high. So I was just a few courses away from a minor when it all got started. And, and uh, I just kind of kept going. Um, and then um, I guess specifically how it, how it led to a career, um, I kind of mentioned it was an accident. Um, I, I graduated college and for about the next 18 months after a, a, a big summer motorcycle trip, um, I was working in a lumber yard and in Duluth, Minnesota, and there was an ad in the Duluth News Tribune, and it was Ellert Publishing looking for an associate editor. So um, looked over the job description. It was, you know, writing, photography, snowmobile race coverage, snowmobile testing. And, and um, as soon as I saw that ad, I, I felt very determined. I said, well, I'm going to go get that job and uh that's that's basically how it started it was i it was i was strangely confident in going into it and um was really excited when john prusak called me one afternoon for an interview and uh invited me down to minneapolis where they were headquartered out in the western suburbs and went there and um as soon as i met him and uh talked a little bit i i I kind of figured I was going to get an offer. Mm -hmm. um, the only problem is I didn't have any experience in journalism. Mm -hmm. um, I remember John telling me, even if you had written a story for your school newspaper, I'd hire you right now. Um, and uh, he ended up giving me a freelance assignment for a how-to story. So I trudged back to Duluth, went to Duluth Lawn and Sport, where they had uh, lined mm -hmm. me up with a mechanic to to go through a preseason sled get your sled ready to ride kind of uh, story. Um, I wrote the story as a freelancer. He paid me for it and I submitted it. And about three days later, 
um, he called me with a job offer. So um, that was that was basically the how it how one thing led to another. It's really cool to kind of hear that just that side of the story where it I don't want to say it's like rags to riches in a way, Tim, but it, it really is like in, in some aspects because it, it wasn't even on your radar, weren't even considering it, but then you saw the opportunity and you're like, you know, I, I, I bet I could do this. I bet I could, I bet I could pull this off. And, you know, I had a question here of like, did you feel qualified at first? And I'm sure in many ways you had the confidence, but you also probably felt kind of underqualified in some ways. Well, um, yeah, I, I mean, I had to prove it. Um, with the application process, I had to submit a writing sample. And, you know, I mentioned the, the motorcycle trip I'd taken, and that was, that was actually a critical piece in the, in the hiring process because I had journaled um, the whole trip, you know, and um, it was me and a friend, we went to the Four Corners, we went Maine, Florida, California, Washington. It was, a, it was an epic 40 days, and I journaled everything. Um, and I turned a few days of that trip into what I thought would be like a new, like a magazine article or a magazine feature story of, you know, here's the challenge. Here's where we were. I was describing the bike's performance. I was describing the road surfaces and, you know, and um, I figured, well, I've read enough magazine articles and specifically enough snowmobile magazines where at that point I, I kind of knew how to, scratch the itch of somebody who might be judging it so i uh i i i did do my research kind of going into it and and felt like uh my application was pretty solid so um to your point about confidence yeah it's it i was about that and that was strange because i had never been so convinced that that i was the right person for something until until i saw that ad yeah, and around this time too, I mean, we're talking the late 90s where snowmobiling hasn't it never really gets big on TV, but we haven't we haven't hit like the sledhead 24/7 era. Internet is still in its infancy. Print media is is the way to get out snowmobile information. The OEMs still rely on it heavily at this time, aftermarket brands. It's it's the spot. So, for you kind of coming in even with limited experience, that was a big responsibility for you. Like you were, you were going in the deep end pretty early. Uh, yeah, there was a lot going on and, and it's kind of funny you say, you know, the internet and it's in its heyday. I remember the first job at Ellert, you know, or I should say my first uh, time there. Uh, Cause I did work there twice, mm -hmm. but my first go around there, um, there was, I didn't have email. There were people in the company who did, but at that time, companies and businesses were were trying to even figure out email like what is this is this going to be a disruption to business who should have it who shouldn't i mean and then that that led to internet access you know who could mm -hmm. who had who had a web browser on their computer who didn't i mean so all all kinds of those things were were just kind of blossoming at the uh, at that time that you mentioned in the late 90s so I'm assuming too, kind of growing up being a, a snowmobile enthusiast, I'm sure you read and, and consumed Snowgo or, or other snowmobile magazines kind of growing up. So you kind of knew what it was about and, you know, what you liked or disliked on the consumer side. But what was kind of your biggest realization once you understood the backside of it? Like, oh, this is why they do it that way. Or, huh, now I understand. Like kind of what was that biggest realization for you? 
Well, um, biggest realization was probably, uh, you know, you touched on it, that it was such a big responsibility. You know, the, the, the onboarding was, was a little abrupt, um, <laughs> you know, cause I, I was hired in, uh, basically September. I, I went from heydays to the office Monday morning, um, mm -hmm. for the first time. And, you know, so was getting acclimated and we were on deadline that week immediately for a snow week title. Um, mm -hmm. so I was just in that first week, you know, I, I was doing the old fashioned red pen editing, mm -hmm. um, other people's copy, um, you know, lending some input. Um, I don't think I lent a lot, you know, in those, in those weeks, you know, you're still trying to get your feet under you and figure out who it is you're working with and what kind of personalities are in the room. Um, but, uh, you know, it wasn't long before, um, there was like, holy crap, I'm, I'm on my own here. Mm -hmm. Um, the first time you're, you know, and then you, you kind of go through the, the snowmobile show season, you know, the consumer shows that, that were really big. And in that era, you know, you had Nova, you had Milwaukee, you had the Big East show, a lot of those, mm -hmm. you know, some of those still exist. Um, but you know, there were a lot of those snowmobile consumer shows that, that occupied that, that time until spirit mountain, you know, Christmas mm -hmm. or on uh, Thanksgiving weekend. And uh, I was a part of the the races at Spirit Mountain. The those days it was the MRP Snowcross Series under Jerry Dillon, and uh, it was to me that moment where I felt, as you said, on the other side, because mm -hmm. years prior I had volunteered at that event, helping to park cars, you know, just traffic control, crowd control, that kind of thing, and. All of a sudden, I was at the Duluth Snowcross again, but I was inside the track with media mm -hmm. credentials, and I was out there with with people I had looked up to, like you know the photographers. You know, Wayne Davis was out there, and I was like, mm -hmm. "Holy cow, this guy's a colleague!" Mm -hmm. um, you know, he he takes pictures for the titles that I work for, and you know, I had admired his work, and um, not to mention that Prusak guy I mentioned who hired me. I mean, I had read his stuff for a couple of years, and and he was my boss. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so every once in a while I'd have these little moments where it all felt a little bit surreal, um, but in an absolutely fun and exciting way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I had kind of a similar experience tied to, to Spirit Mountain, like back when I was racing and like the first time I actually got to race the, race the Duluth National, it was just really weird. Like, you know, you watch it on TV for so many years and it seems like so far away. And then in the blink of an eye, you're, you're in the thick of it and you're on the other side of the gates and it's a, it's a trippy feeling, but what, yeah, one you can't really describe unless you're, unless you're living it. Mm -hmm. So you kind of, you work for, for EPG for three, two and a half, three years. You really kind of get to a, to a high level there. We see your name in a, in a lot of different big feature articles and things like that in snow week. And then in the year 2000, you have kind of a cool opportunity and you move over to external relations within Polaris. So, you know, from my perspective, there's kind of a natural fit there, Tim, you know, you're extremely well-spoken. You kind of understand what the media wants, but then you have a really good product knowledge on the backside for Polaris. But I am kind of curious how that role came about and some of the decision-making to, to leave the media side behind for now. Well, in a word, um, in a word, I was recruited. Um, okay. The relationships that 
media has, you know, with the manufacturers, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of touch points, you know, just in, um, you know, follow up, you know, looking for back in those days, you know, we relied on some manufacturer photography for some of the technical features we were writing, or you'd ask for um, deeper conversations with engineers. So you're reaching out to the media relations department to connect you with people who can, who can help you, you know, as you're, mm-hmm. as you're putting together some of those feature articles. And um, I got to know a person in the media relations department there pretty well uh, through just those um, interactions, those frequent interactions. And uh, she let me know that their department was expanding, that they, you know, she was a lone wolf and the business needed to have basically a, a second person in that role. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and she asked me if I would be interested and that and encouraged me to apply. And, um, and when I did the, the interview was, uh, very quick and they basically asked me how soon I could start. Um, and, uh, so that was, that was basically, um, how that came about. And to your point on having been in the media, um, I think that was something that they liked that I brought to Polaris was I had, I had been in the media so I could better serve the media back, you know, from Polaris to, mm-hmm. you know, outward communications with media materials, you know, press kits and, mm-hmm. um, and, and things that I was asking for that were incomplete in those kits in the past mm-hmm. um, were suddenly business as usual in the, in the coming years. So. So in, 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 a, in some ways, Tim, you kind of had to put your money where your mouth is like, <laughs> you're like uh, a little bit. Yeah. A little yeah. bit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, but that's there awesome. Was, but that was completely different work. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there was, it, it didn't come easy. You know, some of the, some of the results, you know, were may, may have looked like, Oh yeah. You know, that was, that was really easy. You know, I'm, I'm a writer. I can whip out a press release, but, um, but there's a lot of personalities that have to be, um, um, managed, I'll say, mm-hmm. you know, through, through those processes. Um, it was a job that required a lot of collaboration. Um, I was used to being just an individual contributor, um, mm-hmm. you know, and just given an assignment, go do, um, this was given an assignment and you need all of a sudden a cast of six or seven people to help get that work done. Uh, that was new to me. Um, so I had mm-hmm. to learn, um, quite a bit about navigating business and relationships and, and persuading people to do things for me, even though I had zero authority. Um, you know, so that was, um, that was an, an interesting dynamic that, that I hadn't, uh, experienced in, in anywhere I had worked in the past. Yeah. I think that's a, there's, that's kind of an aspect that I think on the consumer side, a lot of people might miss or not quite understand just because, you know, you may just read a sentence. Let's, you know, Skidoo says, yeah, we have a new, we have a new turbo, like just that, that plain sentence. But if you're the OEM, you have to clear that with engineering to make sure you're not lying about performance. You have to clear that with legal to make sure you're advertising it correctly. And then you have to think on the consumer side and on the media side, how is this going to appear? Like what, what are all the different ways that the consumer could read this or interpret this? It's, it's so much deeper than I think people understand. Yeah. And in some ways it was um, at times frustrating, you know, Mm -hmm. and um, you know, there were, there were a few people that, you know um, 
I would say just as a function of their personality, they have to leave their mark on something. And sometimes people would make a change to something I'd written for change sake. Um, that doesn't mean that what I wrote was perfect, but some, sometimes things were clearly, yes, that's an improvement. Other times something was like, well, that's just their opinion on saying the exact same thing, just using a few different words. Um, so like, you know, like I said, some people would, would, uh, would make those marks, so to speak. Um, and then, um, but your point on approvals is dead on. Um, at the time I was with Polaris, um, Tom Tiller was the CEO and mm -hmm. it was just his mandate that no press release went out without his signature of approval. Um, so, um, you know, as part of managing to a deadline, if a press release had to get out, say September 1st, I better have had that approval with his uh, with his admin at least a week prior, um, you know, just with his schedule of coming and going, you never knew when he was going to have the best time to review things. Um, and I also had to flirt with her quite a bit to get, to get what I needed done, done. Um, but, uh, it was, that was, that was always an interesting challenge. And for the record, Tom was never one of those who, who really put his mark on anything as far as changes, but, um, when you're the guy at the top and ultimately accountable for everything, you better know what your company's saying at all times. And, and that was, uh, that was his, his directive and it was very appropriate. So fast forwarding a little bit, Tim, in, in late 2003, you make the move back to EPG as editor in chief on the snow side. So I'm kind of curious, you know, polaris things aside, what kind of drove uh, this move for you to kind of kind of get back into that area? Well, it's not really Polaris aside because um, it was kind of a climate there that that uh, I guess made me ripe for poaching. Mm -hmm. um, John John Prusak had had reached out um, while I was still at Polaris, and at one time he had said, "Hey, would you ever consider coming back?" And at that time, I was like, "Nope." You know, it, yeah. I felt like I had graduated from from that you know, mm -hmm. life or that part of, of my career. Yep. Um, and then uh, it wasn't, uh, it was maybe a year later that, uh, or maybe it wasn't even that long, you know, I'm old, these memories kind of get cloudy. Yeah. But, uh, but I do remember that um, Polaris was getting huge in the ATV business, you know, mm -hmm. uh, sportsmen's were selling like free beer. Um, the, Polaris Rangers were starting to get into the, you know, people were starting to realize that, hey, these are really fun on trails. And um, so they were starting to take a real interest in building something that was aimed more at, at rec, you know, outright recreation. Um, and uh, I was supporting the ATV business and the victory business and the snowmobile business all somewhat equally. I guess that's not fair. ATV was commanding a good part of my time. And uh, they were campaigning with my boss that they wanted me 100% of the time. And the brutal honesty was um, ATVs were fine, but they, they weren't my passion. Mm -hmm. uh, my passion were, um, was, was snowmobiles and motorcycles. And if I was going to be removed from that work, I, was, I wasn't necessarily looking forward to it. Um, so I called Prusak back and said, you know, hey, maybe, maybe I would consider coming back. You know, what, uh, what are you thinking? 
And it took a couple of lunches, but um, I think on lunch two or three, uh, spread out over a month or so, um, we basically had an agreement. And part of that was, um, you know, one of my frustrations why I left Ellert in the first place was it was a great job. Um, but I felt after, you know, a couple laps around the sun, I think I was, you know, uh, almost three years in, I felt like I was ready for, um, you know, a promotion or, or some kind of move mm -hmm. upward, you know, to feel like my career was growing. Mm -hmm. And um, at the time, there wasn't much of an answer um, for that. And then when uh, John and I started talking, that was that was really more or less at the center of the conversation was here's where your career can go if you come back. Um, so he basically outlined a ladder for me of, of getting to an editor chair. And as it turns out, it happened a lot, a lot quicker um, because we had another staff uh, member depart. And so mm -hmm. I was brought in as a senior editor working side by side with Eric Skogman. And then he transitioned to be the editor of Watercraft World magazine on mm -hmm. PWCs. He wanted to wanted to get out, I guess, more in the summertime. And uh, and that kind of opened up the door for me after only I think it was five or six months. And uh, and then I was the uh, lead editor. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I was kind of going through, you know, a big part of the <laughs> the research I do for this pod on some of the older riders is perusing through old snow goers and snow weeks. And, you know, your name comes up quite a bit in this, in this time period, just cause there was so much going on in the industry, like, you know, late 2003, 04, 05, you know, on the engineering side between rev and Yamaha on the four stroke side, like there was just, there was so much material and just so much stuff you had to work on. So it's, it must have been a pretty busy time for you when you when you got back. It, it sure was, and and not to not to poke fun at Polaris a little bit, but um, you know when when the model news started to come out, you know about all those significant vehicles, and you know if you look specifically at like the two thousand three model year, um, you know you had the RX one, you had the Firecat, you had the Rev chassis all debut, and Polaris was still with trailing arms. Mm -hmm. um, I almost felt like, okay, if snowmobile is really my passion, then, you know, maybe I picked the right time to leave. Um, I can't imagine that the, the emphasis and pressure on the, on the Polaris engineers at the time was probably pretty extreme. Um, maybe not a fun business climate, you know, uh, but then again, maybe I could be wrong. You know, it might've been a fun challenge to, to kind of reinvent, which, which they did, you know, with the IQ chassis, but, um, it was, uh, to your point, uh, there was a lot to report on and talk about, and um, it was, yeah, it was it was really a lot of fun. Um, that first year on the snow um, was the 2003 model year that that I was going to be doing, you know, features on. You know, we had some of those amazing, significant sleds in uh, as demos, you know, for our media fleet. So I had access to all those machines that everyone had been talking about for, you know, the, the six or so months before I got into the chair. And then, um, you know, it didn't take long before we're looking at 04 models and, and, uh, things just, they, they move pretty quick. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I was, I used to joke all the time that I'd been looking for a year and a half for the quiet time of year. Um, and that, 
it was it was pretty crazy that you know you think of snowmobile and even the publishing cycle was only seven issues that for snowgoer it was seven issues that kind of corresponded around the winter you know around late fall it was actually around now you'd get that premiere issue in the mail around august and then you know you get the snowmobile year one in september and you know things kind of build up to the year and mm -hmm. uh but you're spending all summer writing about everything you did in the winter um mm -hmm. and a lot of times you're looking at those seven issues and you don't realize that that there's a full 12 months of work that that went into in some cases just a single article yeah and it's uh you know we touched on kind of some some pivotal time periods kind of in your in your professional career but even specifically this one you know internet age coming in hot in this era like it's it's teetering on the line of well i have this information is it is it digital first or is it going to be in a month in a in a print magazine like this is a really interesting time period in the in the world of media particularly with with online stuff mm -hmm. it sure was um in and you know in the early days even the manufacturers weren't quite sure how to release information um you know, there, there was a pretty tried and true practice of just embargoing information until a certain date. Um, and even when some of the um, snowmobile publications were online, um, they might get information the same day that we were, you know, but they had to wait, you know, sometimes four or six weeks before they could publish anything. And that was to allow print the same advantage of, of breaking the story. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, there was it was it was pretty well coordinated for a while until um you know slowly but surely you know both the content changed in in the media side and then um method of delivery changed with with uh with the manufacturers so um it was um kind of a challenge to shape content mm -hmm. um you know there was there was a lot of uncertainty at that time over okay how how deeply is the internet going to cut into our circulation um you know what kind of changes are we going to have to make to stories are people going to stop subscribing you know there was there was a lot of the a lot of the big questions that that persisted for for a couple of years um and uh i think even to some degree some of those still exist today yeah, I was going to say it's a, it's still it's still a big thing these days. I mean, as social media has kind of taken over the world, it's the constant battle between do I need, you know, 120 characters to break this news and is that going to be more impactful or do I have like a three-page article that's going to be like a month after the news truly breaks, but the content is going to be so much better? Like that's mm -hmm. that's that's a debate every day of the week. Yeah, I, I will say that one thing that never crossed my mind while I was there was how to write a headline for uh, to generate clicks. Mm -hmm. um, you know, at that time, you know, we would we didn't put clickbait headlines out there or um, or anything to generate really any reader interest because um, there still wasn't a lot of money to be made online. There wasn't the advertising base. Um, you know, people weren't willing to pay a lot for internet advertising back then um so there there was kind of safety in in that space as well just on the business side of it um it you know the there was still money to be made on the print side and the internet 
not so much, uh, you know, in the in the early days. Um, I, I'm obviously that's quite reversed now, but I think to to this day there's still a premium uh, placed on a printed ad versus a banner ad on a website. I am curious too. This is kind of a lame segue, but I'll take it on, you know, you talk about value in print versus value in online, particularly in the late 2000s. As a young guy myself, I'm 27. I'm not that young, but I'll take it and run with it. It's definitely the age demographic is starting to shift. I think snowmobiling is not getting any younger. So the demographic is basically just moves forward. It's like the same 10 year gap that just keeps moving and moving and moving. But because of that, as you have, you know, the way people consume media is evolving in the background, you kind of have to teeter that line of a lot of my core demographic likes the print, but the future might be online. I'm curious how you guys kind of had to navigate that or like what was kind of tipping the scale one way or another during this time. Um, I would say what tipped the scale more than anything was just how we approached the writing itself. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and probably the best analogy for it, and I don't remember, I, it wasn't mine. I picked it up somewhere. Um, Might have been one of Prusak's, but, um, it, you know, you consider Sports Illustrated. Mm -hmm. You know, for years, Sports Illustrated was was in print long before the Internet. Well, everyone knew the result of the Super Bowl by the time the game was over. And Sports Illustrated was still printing features on the players, mm -hmm. what happened in the locker room, the emotions of, of holding the Lombardi trophy, you know, the coach interview, um, you know, all kinds of insider information. And that's kind of the path that we had taken with, with uh, even some of the writing we did for snow week, um, you know, race day, the, there was enough information out on the websites at that time, you know, people would post, race results, maybe not in real time, they didn't have streaming yet, but you know, you would, you would basically be able to see on Monday afternoon who won the Sunday feature. Um, or, you know, in some cases, Monday morning, that stuff would often, you know, post an update overnight. Um, so we didn't have necessarily the mission to talk about the race as much as we had done previously, but now we were talking more about the feelings around the race. You know, interview the mechanic, how they contributed to the success, interview the race team owner, um, you know, let the driver talk a little bit about his training, you know, things like that, that, that shaped the content more than the lap by lap coverage of what happened. Yeah. I mean, kind of getting into snow week, this is a real segue. I redeemed myself on this one, real segue to snow week. Cause that's, I mean, it's still iconic in the world of snowmobiling, even, even long after it's, it's not around anymore people still collect them. It's still one of the cooler pieces of history in the snowmobile world. And you were a huge part of it, Tim, in some of those, some of those big years. I have a couple, couple snow weeks on my wall in my office that have big articles from me just because the covers are so damn cool. But I am kind of curious, you floated between both between, you know, writing issues for Snowgoer at times of the year, writing stuff for snow week. What are some of the major differences between how you'd have to approach the content because mm -hmm. in, in many ways, the audience, it overlaps, but it's very different material and they're going to feel very differently about it and, and how they read it. 
Yeah. Um, so the easiest way to think about it to me um, is, you know, Snowgoer, that was the feature writing. Um, that was, you know, there's a there's more of a connection to the enthusiast side of of, you know, the machinery. You're talking about, you know, the innovation, you're talking about, you know, competitive comparisons, you're picking snowmobile of the year, you're, um, you're, you're talking about, you know, places to go, um, you know, on vacation. Um, Snow week was more of a beat. Um, you know, there was um, more of a reporter that was more traditional journalism to me. You know, if you're going to a race weekend and, and you're basically going to uh, different people on the in the pits on the mm -hmm. sideline in victory circle you know you're you're trying to get quotes and sound bites and um i actually um when i was working a snow week beat um i had one of those little micro cassette recorders with me and and i would talk into it of what was happening what i was seeing mm -hmm. um because you know, after covering so many races, you, you don't remember all the details, or at least I didn't. Um, so I had to use a tool like that to, to recall things accurately. I, you know, sometimes call out, okay, on lap 12, Corey Davidson, you know, passed Deardall. Um, mm -hmm. I, not that that ever happened. If, if Brian's listening to this, you know, he might challenge that. But um, anyway, uh, <laughs> there's, or, now I have to apologize to Corey. It's not like he was incapable. <laughs> But uh, anyway, just digging a hole, just digging know, a hole. Yeah, by by example, that's that's uh, some of the some of the differences of how I how I had to approach the the different responsibilities for the title. I'm curious if you kind of if there's any interviews where you kind of I want to say fanboyed because I mean I have a podcast I've definitely fanboyed a little bit but like your first kind of oh shit interview if you're like shaking in your boots going up to, to shake somebody's hand or if you were just, you know, calm, cool and collected the whole time, Tim? Well, this, um, that's a great question. Um, and this, this actually goes back to something I referenced earlier about, um, the first time I was at Ellert and when you're realizing kind of that, you know, to you, the, you know, the holy shit moment was that I'm all on my own. Mm -hmm. Um, and specifically kind of my big, oh shit, moment wasn't necessary. I, I don't recall a, a particular interview I was nervous about. Um, somewhere in college, somebody had told me, hey, you know, this was one of the journalism courses I took. They said, you know, it's okay to be nervous when you're interviewing somebody. But if you're media, remember the person you're interviewing is probably more nervous than you are. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I had that kind of in my pocket and, you know, kind of in a in a wisdom way. But in terms of the oh shit moment, um, I was dispatched in January 1998 to the Ironman 250 up in Thief River. Mm -hmm. um, I had still been only on the job a couple of months, and that was the first time I had gone to a race event myself. Um, and the pressure came from, at least on the editorial calendar, the Ironman 250 race was the cover story. Okay. Um, and back then, you know, you're shooting 35 millimeter slide film. Digital cameras were maybe on the market, but they were insanely expensive, well out of our budget at the time. So we were still shooting film cameras. And um, there was there was as much pressure to make sure you had a good shot. And not only that, but you had to have a good shot of somebody who actually won the race. Um, and then, you know, you're also tasked with, 
getting quotes and talking to people. And, um, and I remember, uh, you know, thankfully that I had friends in Thief River uh, who wore Articat jackets because they worked there. And uh, at the time, Paul James was was uh, a colleague and he was the media relations lead at, at Articat. And um, I partnered up with him and I remember him driving the uh, the uh, the Snow Week Suburban uh, down the highway. I'm hanging out the window with a camera shooting drivers in the ditch. And um, I asked Paul, I said, how fast are they going? And, and these guys were carrying about 90 miles an hour in the ditch. And I was trying to get pictures while leaning out the window. And this is January in Thief River. Um, I'm pretty sure I had some uh, skin damage from windburn. Um, but <laughs> as they say, I got the shot. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I had I had a few to pick from. Uh, Brad Paik won that event. So it was um, on, on one hand, you know, it's kind of fun to see the local brand win the local race and um you know he was part of team arctic and um he was also you know just a genuinely nice guy and really easy to talk to so i don't know where those nerves shifted um i i would say it probably um i settled down during the race and then probably got amped up again when i submitted the film to see if i had a a picture worth a damn that was going to come back from the developer yeah, I, I could imagine too, just, just the nerves like of, cause it's, it's very sim similar with this podcast. It's just, you know, all the prep work that goes into it, even during the interview, you know, you're nervous the entire time. And then when you finally hit stop recording or you submit the photos that you took, you're like, all right, I'm good. I, I'll be good. This is going to be sweet. And then your mentality changes and then you're all excited. It's a, it's a whole, it's a whirlwind of emotions for sure. Definitely. Uh, yeah. Thanks for taking me back. That's kind of a fun one. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we're kind of touching on kind of some of those heydays of, of Snow Week magazine. And it's still kind of like the Bible of racing for a really long time. You know, it's, that's where people learn about some of the, the major results and things like that. And it's, I mean, I'm sure as you look back to him, even though you're, you know, 10, 15 years removed now, I'm sure it's some of your, some of your coolest memories and things you're most proud of have to have come from that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, it's, you know, if I ever come across, I've, I've got quite a few of the magazines, you know, that I contributed to stashed around the house in various places. And every once in a while, you know, if you come across one, um, sometimes I'll lose track of an hour, um, you know, because I'll, I'll pick up a snow week and page through it and, and reread an article that, you know, either myself or one of my colleagues wrote, you know, several years ago. And um, it's, it makes it feel like, um, like it just happened. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's, it kind of, it's amazing that even though, like you said, it was 15 years ago, um, the memories are still really fresh. And, the, you know, you, you think of different things that happened during that trip or that race weekend or, even the late night of uh, of uh, press check before before that thing went to print. So we'll shift over a little bit, Tim, to kind of some more industry topics because you know snowgoer, you know snow weeks racing, but snowgoer is still a lot of industry stuff, and you guys are reporting heavily on what's going on. Kind of going into into two thousand eight, this is kind of the 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 point in time that a lot of us reference I, I wouldn't say like the 
the music died, but you know, it's, it's snowmobiling was a lot bigger prior to that. And as I've said repeatedly to some of my other guests, I was too young. I can't even recognize what's going on, but you know, the history looking back, it's definitely recognizable between pre 2008 recession and post 2008. But from what you can remember around that time, Tim, what were some of the, the bigger overall trends in the snowmobile industry kind of, kind of pre recession? Uh, Pre-recession, um, you know, there was a lot of innovation going on at the time, or but different. Um, mm-hmm. I I tend to think that those are the those are the years where manufacturers really started to build very purpose-built machines. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't too long before that that um, Articat legitimized mountain sleds by building a true mountain-built chassis. You know, with its M series. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you had at that time by 2008, you know, um, Skidoo had responded by basically reinventing the summit and, and Polaris likewise, you know, with, with a more dedicated, um, RMK series that was purpose built. And then outside of that, you've also got kind of a return of, uh, of muscle sleds a bit Four strokes are starting to gain a lot of traction, you know, um, Yamaha was on its second version by then of, you know, the, the Genesis 1000, or I should say the, um, you know, they, it evolved from an RX one to a, to an apex by then. And the handling had improved remarkably. Um, but with that innovation and extra rider goodies, and, you know, I think that that's a point too, where things really started to, make people second guess how much they were spending. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, the recession certainly doubled down on that. Yeah, it's, it's kind of unfortunate looking back and reading some of the history because all the OEMs, like the, just the, the engineering and everything, like just, it's, it's really creeping up in that time period. Like everything is seemingly getting better in a lot of aspects. And then we hit 08 and it's like, I don't want to say it's back to the drawing board because all the technology continues on, but everybody kind of has to like reset because there's just so much less money in the market. Like everybody overall units are down. Everybody just kind of has to rethink what the industry is going to look like kind of post 2008. Yeah, that's true. And even earlier, um, or, you know, maybe there were some lingering questions around that time, but there was um, a lot of uncertainty just around, you know, regulations. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, some of the cost increases that I kind of teased there, a lot of that was driven by uh, the EPA requirements that um, they set new standards for small engines and snowmobiles had to meet new emissions requirements. And that meant new technology to, you know, get below the uh, emission threshold. Um, so that's that's where you did have a lot of fun new engineering, as you mentioned, you know, right in engines. Um, you know, fuel management, injection management, you know, you had direct injection, clean fire injection. Um, you know, there's, um, you know, like I said, four strokes are starting to proliferate at that time. So um, there was no shortage of material to write about at the time. So that that part of it was fun. Um, but at the same time, you know, we were starting to really feel that the, the industry was getting smaller. Um, mm-hmm. One of the data points that I remember was... Um, it was around that time um, where units, I think in 2008, unit sales for the U.S. at least were 
well below a hundred thousand, maybe 50, 60,000 units. Wow. Um, globally, they were still there, but you think back to, um, my time at Polaris in 2001, Polaris sold more edge chassis snowmobiles than the entire industry sold snowmobiles in about 15 years later. So that to me is kind of a mark of, of how much the industry had contracted. Yeah, that was another point I had on here because I was just kind of curious the consumer sentiment about sleds in this era because you had kind of mentioned people were starting to be a, just a little more conscious. We start to see it, the sleds kind of teeter towards that that kind of 10 grand mark, which now, you know, it, 10 grand's cheap for a snowmobile, brand new. But at this point in time, you know, early 2000s, everything's about four, five K in that area. So I was kind of curious on the consumer side, what feedback you were getting, whether it's on the magazine or what you're hearing at the at the industry shows of just what are what are the consumers thinking of snowmobiles around this time? Um, you know, a lot of times people would would ask questions about why aren't the manufacturers building you know, unit X, Y, Z or something, you know, mm -hmm. they're, they're creating something or their version of what a perfect snowmobile would be. Mm -hmm. um, and it was almost like the industry trained the consumers to think that way because machines, mm -hmm. as we mentioned, you know, we're getting so specialized and so narrow in focus and niche, you know, you've got, you got mm -hmm. hybrids at that time, you've got dedicated tours, solo and two up, you've got mountain sleds, you've got different classes of trail machines, you've got economy trail, middleweights, and then big bores. And um, so the unit, you know, the, or I should say the industry was getting very segmented and, and consumer questions followed that, you know, they would, you know, and then of course you get the occasional um, guy who would ask when triples are coming back or, you know, why isn't there a, a bigger turbo um, you know, four stroke. And in those days, you know, people were already starting to um, want, you know, four stroke turbos, um, you know, more than just the 660. I mean, there were, there were aftermarket companies like Vendor Racing that were, that were putting turbos on RX1s and Apexes. And, you know, there was already an appetite for that to, to make its way into a dealer showroom. Um, so a lot of it, a lot of the conversations with consumers were still about snowmobiles you know that's why they read the magazine that's why that's where they were attached to the industry um and you know sometimes the the reader results that we or i should say reader feedback that we'd get from letters would um you know we'd always get the most amount of dialogue after we named the snowmobile the year mm -hmm. which you know we always joked internally at snowgore it was about the most reckless thing you can possibly do because no matter what you pick You'll be wrong. You're going to piss off, three, <laughs> yeah. you know, three of the three <laughs> of the brand supporters are going to be mad and only one's going to cheer. Yeah. You know, so, you know, it was, you know, when we, we joke about that and, you know, inevitably, you know, you'd have people say, oh, well, it was their turn or they bought, you know, so-and-so manufacturer paid for that, um, which of course was never the case. You know, we, we'd always have to straighten them out and say, well, if that was the case, you know, why did Skidoo win two years in a row or Yamaha won two years in a row? I think there was a couple of those where Skidoo won it back to back, I think in 04 and 05 and then uh, Yamaha 06, 07. So, you know, there's a there's a four year span that only two manufacturers won. 
And, you know, it always anchored on innovation. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's where that, uh, that's where that award was always anchored was, you know, what model snowmobile is making the sport better. That's, that's kind of, that was kind of the guiding principle all along, um, you know, and, and that's, uh, that, that was probably the most fun and um, passionate that readers ever got was, was around uh, the selections we made in snowmobile year. Yeah. And I'm, I always get a kick out of the guys who in the comments section think, think they have it all figured out, you know, like just, they completely understand your, your mindset and why, a, why a certain brand won. Like I've, I've been fortunate enough to, to work for a couple OEMs. And the joke I always make is like, if you ever want to know what you have coming in the next like five years, just read the forums. Cause those guys have everything figured <laughs> yep. out. They know everything. <laughs> yeah, they sure do. The best armchair critics in the world. <laughs> Uh, well, just a couple more questions for you here, Tim. I won't keep you too much longer, but like I've said, you got a cool story and a, and a diverse background. So there's a lot we could talk about, but just, uh, just a couple more for you. So between your time at Polaris in external relations, and then your, your two stints with, with Snowgoer and snow week, what's the coolest product launch you think you've, you've been able to be a part of whether launching it or writing about it. Oh, uh... That's a, that's a tough one because, you know, there was, there's a lot of them that, you know, have a lot of cool memories, but um, there's, there's a different launch that, that comes to mind. Um, And it actually marries my time um, in the media with, with Polaris. Mm -hmm. Um, When they launched the fusion for the 2005 Mm -hmm. model year, um, to be frank, it wasn't quite ready. Uh, when mm-hmm. we did the road reports, you know, the spring tests, it, um, it had been a long time since we had ridden a snowmobile that felt so much like a prototype. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just about everything you ride at those spring tests is, is, is production ready. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes there's a few attention to detail type things, you know, they might route cables a little bit different or the decal placement may move an inch, you know, but for the most part, you know, the, the way that the machine is calibrated, the way the engine performs, all that is pretty much what consumers are going to find when they pick up their snow check. Mm-hmm. Um, the fusion was different, you know, we, and we had to be honest with Polaris and say, you know, gosh, we didn't feel like, you know, it got a good, uh, it didn't show well, you know, it, we don't feel like we got a good understanding of what that machine's all about. So, um, in August, I remember I was on my way home from our, our cabin and uh, got a phone call from my uh, friend and colleague, Pat Bourgeois, who mm-hmm. was in media relations at Polaris at the time. And he asked me if I had a passport. I said, well, yeah. And he said, um, I've got an opportunity for you to go to Iceland where our engineers are doing final calibration work on the fusion. And we're handpicking a few journalists to go and you're on the list if you can make the trip. And I said, absolutely. Um, I think that was a time I got in trouble because uh, my wife was riding right alongside of me and I committed to it before talking to her. <laughs> but, you know, but that's one of those no brainer commitments, mm-hmm. right? You, um, mm-hmm. And it was, it was, um, I think we had wheels up on the plane. It was, 
it was shortly thereafter. It was maybe only about two weeks later that uh, that we were booked, and um, and that was unique because it was not only a different country; it was Iceland, but it was August, mm-hmm. and you know here there's this snow-capped glacier, and it was it was really an adventure because the glaciers fogged. You had a element of danger because the guides up there were saying, do not under any circumstances go off on your own. There's, you know, crevasses out here that will swallow you. And, um, and which, which is true. I mean, we, you know, we saw a couple and went up to a couple and, you know, they're just, it's a four foot wide crack that's pitch black and drops a few hundred feet. Um, and you know, you fall into one of those and, you know, the guy would still be there, but, um, anyway, so, um, just from a, a total cool factor, um, that takes the cake because I remember there was a cabin at the top of this glacier and, um, some of the Icelandic guys who were somewhat of our, our hosts were, were up there and, and they were sauteing these little, like crayfish sized lobsters and white wine and and cooking those up there and there was a natural steam sauna in another little building next door and i remember thinking i'm never going to do this again mm-hmm. so it was it was truly you know um a trip that couldn't be duplicated and i think that's what makes it so special um you know most of the other press launches were were in locations that you know Yes, they're elaborate. Yes, they're scenic. Yeah, they're fun, but it wouldn't take much effort to get there. Whereas duplicating this trip would be next to impossible. Well, it does beg the question then, Tim, was that second calibration any better? Was, was that, was that fusion you wrote in Iceland any better? It was better. Yes. Um, <laughs> was it, was it snowmobile of the, of, of the year material? No. Um, you know, that was, that was the 900, you know, we all, we all know it, it, it had its problems, but, um, there was a lot good about the chassis, um, that was just, you know, to be frank, a little bit, uh, overshadowed by an engine that, that wasn't so good. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, we saw in production, the 600 and 750 variants were, or sorry, six and 700 variants were, were much better performers than the 900, but by the by that time the the fusion brand had already more or less been been uh damaged Tarnished, from yeah. from from the 900 experience that so many people had so you've written a lot of a lot of super cool articles over the years tim a lot of cool interviews a lot of cool feature pieces are there any that stand out that you're just the the most proud of like ones that you always reference as yep that's kind of my my crowning jewel there, yes, um, and it, you know, this kind of goes back to you know when we were talking about the innovation and and the EPA getting involved. Um, I spent considerable time researching and diving into um, that whole emissions piece. Um, had a lot of hours invested. You know, it, it almost felt more like you're doing a college, you know, research paper mm-hmm. um, because you're you're looking at and citing sources and you're, you're pouring through data and you're doing a lot of it, you know, in libraries and late at night. And, um, anyway, um, there was also at the time, a lot of questions 
from consumers. Um, you know, the, they knew that this was around 2004 and the rule was going to take effect in 2006. And a lot of consumers were claiming that, well, that's the end of two strokes. Mm -hmm. um, obviously that hasn't proven out. And um, the story that I wrote was basically, um, I referred to it as uh, the midterm exam, I believe by title. It was it was a significant step forward in, in emissions and what that meant to the industry and to snowmobilers specifically. Um, and it was a two-part story. The second part was about the technologies that manufacturers were employing to meet at that time what the credit system was and and how they were going to achieve you know emissions targets and um, it I I just know how much effort I put into it and what made it really rewarding I guess is um, that article did win an award um, with the organization called the Minnesota Magazine Publishers Association and uh, I submitted that or I should say the company submitted that story uh, as a nominee and it did win best technical feature. Um, mm. So that was something that I was extremely proud of. Um, again, just because it, it felt like the reward was fitting for the amount of work that I had to put into it. Yeah. And, and, you know, regulatory compliance stuff is you're, you're, you're doing God's work. If you're able to kind of dilute that information down to something the average person can truly understand. So yeah, I would, I would have been extremely proud of that as well, Tim. It was, it wasn't fun. Um, but like I said, I think it was necessary. Um, it was almost mm -hmm. something that it felt like we were, we would be doing readers a disservice by not taking some of the myths away. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like I said, there was there was a lot of, you know, you know, we had to sort through fact versus fiction. And, and uh, some of us felt like it was a, it was our responsibility to help help do that. So last one for you here, Tim, I'm sure you'll I'm sure you'll take it a bunch of different ways because it's gonna be pretty loaded. But, you know, you're still pretty involved in the power sports world these days. Uh, you're a sales director at the largest two stroke engine oil manufacturer in the world. And I guarantee you listeners will never figure it out. But how do you think, Tim, the snowmobile industry has kind of evolved over the last 10 years? Like what are the, what are the biggest trends you're seeing, whether it's engineering, pricing, dealer presence, all this stuff? Um, to me, um, you know, it, snowmobiles are unique in that there is such a clear cut seasonality to the business. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can see, compare it to other industries like ATVs, motorcycles, you know, there's a model year, but sometimes there's running changes and you hardly notice, you know, one year to the next. Um, snowmobiles specifically, because they're so built in such a narrow window for a specific year. I mean, even the jokes about bold new graphics, you can still tell a 2005 from a 2004 from a 2006 even if it's the same chassis same engine mm -hmm. if you're if you're really in tune to to different graphics packages or different order things that were only available that year and that color mm -hmm. combination with those skis with that you know i mean those are those are that's something unique um mm -hmm. the other thing that's unique is is you know, all the manufacturers still have very active engineering teams that that are just as passionate about snowmobiling as the people who ride them. 
um, if not more so because they went to school and were probably more specifically after a career in in the place where they are um, than than many other people in the industry. But um, what that means is the product just gets so much better every every year. I mean, in some cases, it's it's significant leaps forward. Um, you just think of just the the overall marvel of a snowmobile itself. I mean, the fact that you can legally, for the price of you know what are we about thirteen five for a for a six hundred yeah. now trail sled you know in mm-hmm. that in that ballpark, um, you can go to Wisconsin or Michigan, pluck that down, leave the dealer, um, and have something that goes a hundred miles an hour can take a 60 foot jump land on the other side at you know 10 below zero and nothing breaks i mean the the genius of engineering to to make that vehicle even possible at that price point i mean that the performance at the price point even though snowmobiles are more expensive nothing else can touch it um you know and i think you know, that's one of the things that snowmobilers kind of have figured out, whether they think about it or not, is they know that there's there's no other experience out there that is that that can duplicate what a snowmobile can provide. And I'm sure it's kind of it's kind of humbling, you know, looking back into your past, Tim, of, you know, getting started on a on a scorpion, you know, around your house to to looking at some of the sleds you've ridden over the years and you know, where the engineering and the technology is taking it today. It's, it's gotta be wild to look at it kind of as a whole picture. I, I had a friend ask me not too long ago, um, how many snow, different snowmobiles do you think you've ridden? And instead of counting, I just said, well, Matt, I said from uh, about 1997 through 2008, all of them. <laughs> Oh, that's, I mean, that's all you can say, right? You're like, I've, I've probably ridden more snowmobiles than like, I I even know where to go with it. Like I, it's kind of like the old uh, adage, like that guy's probably forgotten more stuff than you even know. It's like a comparable thing for you and, and how many sleds you've ridden over the years, I bet. Oh, and you know, it, it, there's just so many entertaining things along the way. I mean, uh, one of the, one of the favorite road reports memories, you know, and, um, Blair Morgan was a guest rider of ours, you know, and he was, uh, with Articat at the time and he was riding the Thundercat for the, for the photo shoot, you know, and, um, you know, a lot of people loved it, but, um, you know, he was getting some photo instructions and Blair said, so you want me to jump the Buick, you know, it was just, <laughs> you know, just different things like that, you know, and that's not an insult on the, on the machine, but, you know, it's just one of those little tidbits, you know, and. And so many of the the fun memories are just around snowmobiles that I have in mm-hmm. my life, and um, and uh, you know, kind of, I I stuck around a bit even after I left Snowgore. I um, I was out of the industry for a couple of years, but I still contributed to magazines. I was still going to different tests. I wasn't riding all the machines anymore, but I was still riding a lot of the latest and greatest. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, something I, uh, I still enjoy today. That's awesome. Even though I haven't written an article in a, 
in a snowmobile magazine now for more than 10 years. So, yeah, but you have been on some hot shot kid from Ham Lakes podcast now. So, I mean, you can, you can put there that on that. your resume, Tim. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody can take that away from me. Oh, man. Well, we'll wrap it up there for you, Tim. Again, I really appreciate the time. I knew it was going to be fun. Um, you know, all the, all the times I've been like on a customer visit or something like that with you, I always just want to hear the stories. So uh, I knew I had to had to have you on and kind of share what we could with the public because there's there's a lot of cool stories and background with you. So I want to make sure everybody could hear it. Oh, it's there's been some amazing nights of, you know, just standing in a hotel lobby, listening to racers tell their war stories. And mm -hmm. um, so many of those are you know, anybody who's been in the industry a while um, has has got quite a few fun stories and. And thanks for pulling some of them out of me tonight. This was fun. For sure. For sure. How many miles you put on your, your motorcycle so far this year, Tim? Uh, coming up on 7,000 and I'll have probably another thousand by the time the snow flies. Oh my God. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Well, thanks again, Tim. I, uh, I really appreciate it. Well, thank you again for the invite. And like I said, it was a lot of fun talking to you tonight. Yeah. Tim Erickson on the Carbide Podcast. Poor guy, right? Stuck capping off a day of Icelandic glacier riding with a lobster and a sauna. Somebody pour one out for Tim ASAP. In all seriousness, Tim is a great example of how passionate people can succeed in the industry in multiple different areas. Being able to talk the talk in our small community is a skill, even if you don't realize it. Thanks again to Tim for offering up his time. I wanted to do an episode based around print media due to its importance in our sport, and Tim's stories were a great example as to why. Thanks again to you listeners. You guys rock. Be sure to subscribe and check out our Instagram page. And as always, take care.